0: Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide leaders with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving health industry. Brought to you by Vynamic, Trending Health explores topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. In today's episode, we're going to discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. I'm here with Dynamics' Ryan Hummel and Mindy McGrath to talk about what's trending now. The biggest story that is dominating the headlines when it comes to the health industry here in the United States is last week's Alabama Supreme Court decision that frozen embryos can be legally regarded as extrauterine children under state law. This decision carries profound implications for in vitro fertilization, IVF, and has triggered concerns about the increased risks and costs of these procedures for both patients and medical practitioners.
1: The ruling actually emerged from a wrongful death lawsuit, of all things. There was a couple in Alabama whose frozen embryos were actually destroyed in a fertility clinic accident in 2020. Apparently, an unauthorized person entered said fertility clinic, removed several frozen embryos, dropped them, and these embryos were destroyed. That then stemmed to this case that made it to the Alabama Supreme Court, where all Republican members of the court sided with the couple, and they asserted that the embryos did fall under the protection of the state's wrongful death of a minor act. Nearly half of the IVF providers in Alabama have at least purportedly decided to halt treatments until more legislation and clarity is in place. And while some of this legal impact only extends to Alabama, there is concern that other states may adopt this and some of these parenthood statutes that recognize life and rights at conception at the state level. So potentially some profound ramifications.
2: Brian, you mentioned the IVF process a little bit. When you think about IVF and how it involves the creation, right, of multiple embryos, some of which may be discarded during the IVF process for a variety of reasons, whether it's because of genetic testing or perhaps the embryos may not even survive the freeze-thaw process of cryogenic storage. That's when the embryos are frozen for future IVF rounds. It is common for fertilized eggs not to survive in nature and in the lab. And it's estimated that only 55% of embryos make it right to the blastocyst stage once fertilized at a clinic. So what is really vexing for the health system is when the ruling equates a frozen embryo as a legal equivalent of a child. To your point, Ryan, it brings so many concerns to fertility health providers And it impacts patients, too, when you think about one in six people being impacted by infertility and the effort that they make to go through IVF to try to get pregnant. Some of the questions that this is raising and that we don't have answers to yet are, will patients, not only can patients freeze future embryos, but will they freeze future embryos if they're concerned about policy Can patients donate or destroy unused embryos? And who assumes the legal risk for embryos if destroying one could result in a criminal homicide charge? So this court decision enacted some of the anti-abortion language that was added to the Alabama Constitution in 2018, where it says that policy of this state is to ensure the protection of the rights of the unborn child. And so now you have a situation where IVF providers have halted offering these services in Alabama until they can see how this legislation actually plays itself out. I think when we first talked about the implication of the Dobbs decision in
0: 2022, we were thinking a lot about what were the impacts not only on reproductive autonomy, but healthcare that individuals were receiving as a direct result and the lack of homogeneity of that care across the states as we remand certain decisions to the states with the removal of the protections of Roe. And I think we thought a lot around the rates of elective abortions, but also with the appropriate healthcare decisions for treating miscarriages or decisions that caring individuals have to make when it comes to the survival of themselves, not only the fetus. And some of the maybe what seemed farther fetched aspects were what came to IVF. And I think we're seeing that come to fruition now. It wasn't over speculation then that something like this could happen. And we're seeing both sides of the coin really be affected when it comes to individuals, reproductive health care and autonomy here in the States where it impacts not only the carrying of a pregnancy to term, but even the ability to become pregnant in the first place by impacting the ability of patients to undergo IVF. I think one area we'll be watching will be not only the patterns that happen with regards to individual state decisions as a result of this Alabama Supreme Court decision, but looking at will there be attempts to remedy this situation through federal legislation. In other news from the US government this month, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services released the second part of their guidance for the Medicare Prescription Payment Plan. As a reminder, this plan is part of the Inflation Reduction Act, which includes other measures that impact healthcare, such as allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices and caps out-of-pocket costs to $2,000 per patient per annum and lowers healthcare premiums for patients with Affordable Care Act plans.
1: Yeah, Jen, we've been waiting for this guidance for a while and now it's all over the headlines. And I can't think of a more policy-laden polarizing act other than the Inflation Reduction Act here in our circles of healthcare. And you know, I think this is a pretty substantial shift in the way beneficiaries are expending. So just a little background, I guess. The Medicare Prescription Payment Plan allows patients or beneficiaries to pay their Medicare Part D out-of-pocket costs over the course of a year as well. So there's caps of -of out-of-pocket costs, but it's also a payment smoothing mechanism, which again, it's a significant shift on how beneficiaries manage their expenses. And Medicare Part D beneficiaries are already seeing savings because in 2024, it begins and then 2025, it goes to 2000. This is specific to prescription drug coverage And it is available for those seniors and folks that have disabilities on Medicare Part D. The intent is altruistic. It's to reduce this upfront cost for Medicare beneficiaries. And what it should also do is really change the game when it comes to adherence and actually folks executing the plan of prescription medication. And this is the second set of guidance. But when you think about the areas that we're going to see play out, when you think about outreach and education, right, this is a crucial aspect of all sort of U.S. healthcare designs, because our U.S. healthcare is a little confusing, if you didn't know, and a crucial aspect is really the outreach and education of beneficiaries, so they understand this new patient option, how to enroll, and how it benefits them. Pharmacy processes will also need to be addressed, and adjustments in pharmacy operations are also going to be necessary to accommodate this pretty wildly new payment structure, I'd say, and ensuring that pharmacies across the country can manage these payments correctly over time without disrupting services and any other operational considerations. So there is the policy, there's this enactment that happens, but then there's like kind of behind the scenes adjustments that need to be made for marketing, for planned sponsors, for billing, tracking payments, et cetera. So pretty significant step forward in making healthcare even more accessible.
0: So let me make sure I understand this. Normally when the year starts over, your out-of-pocket maximums, your benefit design kind of resets. So a lot of times you're facing those really higher bills at the pharmacy until you're reaching that max for your plan in which your insurance kicks in more. This sounds like instead of facing that higher upfront outlay and then getting to lower no cost later in the year, we're kind of evening it out. So it's flat over the course of the entire year instead. Is that right?
1: That is right. Plus a cap, right? It's like yes and.
2: Yeah. And I think that's why they call it a smoothing provision because it's smoothing your expenses over the course of the year. So when you think about what types of Medicare beneficiaries would actually benefit from this, it's those that have high cost medications where their out of pocket liability is very, very high at the beginning of the year. And so by taking that, right, and now starting to smooth it over the course of Whenever they enroll, right, 12 months or whenever they get their prescription, that should enable an easier time for beneficiaries to be able to afford that medication until they reach that $2,000 cap, which is pretty significant. The IRA as a whole is really focused on trying to reduce and lower prescription drug costs for Medicare beneficiaries. But these types of changes that we're talking about also have a pretty big impact both on health plans as well as life sciences manufacturers. I mean, for health plans, they're going to have to absorb a lot of costs associated with that $2,000 cap. They're also going to have to invest time, money, resource right, in making those operational changes that Ryan mentioned, those member outreach programs that will require an element of education and then empowering Right, the right types of members to enroll in the, we call it the MP3, but the Medicare prescription payment plan. So there are a lot of elements to this that in order to make it feasible right, for members to find their medications to be less expensive, there's a lot of back office operations that have to occur for plans in order to do that. And then on the life sciences side, since its inception, right, the life sciences manufacturers have not been very supportive of the Inflation Reduction Act provisions. However, this provision specifically, they are supportive of because it should enable better access for Medicare members when it comes to those high prescription costs that they have.
0: Yeah, it makes sense to me that the life sciences companies would be aligned to this provision, perhaps more so than the other bits of the Inflation Reduction Act, as you mentioned, Mindy, particularly for those manufacturers of higher cost therapies or branded therapies where there's not a generic available. They don't have to worry about their patients weighing out, Okay, when can I take a prescription vacation to make sure that I am not tapping into my higher cost therapy until I've already Reach the point in which my insurance kicks in and defrays some of that out-of-pocket cost for me. There's some more news coming out of the pharmaceutical sector as well. We saw a report from Reuters that showed that new drugs that were introduced in the United States last year had a substantial price hike compared to the year before, somewhere in the ballpark of about 35%. The median list price for new drugs last year was $300,000. We know that often doesn't correspond to what patients are paying out of pocket, but that is certainly some sticker shock on its face. And that is a notable increase from 222,000 in 2022 and 180,000 in 2021. When I look at these numbers changing year over year, it's pretty dramatic. And I think I, as well as many others, have some questions about what are the factors that are contributing to such an increase? Why do we think they've gone up so much in the last few years in particular, Ryan?
1: I, like most of us, listened to Mindy McGrath over the last decade around this, and I think that we have really seen a trend execution of the way we treat diseases in the U.S. instead of having a daily pill or molecules that are developed to have someone take medicine over the years. It's been more personalized healthcare. It's been a little bit more focused. And it's no secret that pharmaceutical companies are focused more on rare diseases. And more than half of the new FDA-approved drugs just in the last two years were for orphan diseases. And the definition of that is affecting less than 200,000 Americans. Gene therapy drugs are also quite popular in the pharmaceutical space and effective, and those are one-time treatments. And so these costs or the list price is much higher. Some of those are even to the millions of dollars. So yes, there's a sticker shock that goes into this, but when you dig into the details, it's really not surprising.
2: You know, I also think we need to look more holistically at pricing practices and honestly, contracting practices within the health system so when we think about the other side of the equation and then i'll come back to list price when it comes to life sciences manufacturers but i also think that we are talking about a system in the united states where this rebate world has been so pervasive in contracting for access And we'd be a little short-sighted if we didn't mention that that could also be a contributing factor to the rapid increase of drug pricing. Because we know that on the other side of this payers, right, and PBMs are also asking for just greater percentages of rebate amounts. So, you know, there's almost like a little bit of an incentive here for both parties to be raising their prices because everybody wants the higher list price so they can make a higher rebate. It's such a complex topic, and I want to be really mindful, right, of how we talk about price increases for therapies, because I don't think it's as cut and dry as headlines would like us to believe. And I think, you you know, when we talk about digging deep, we really need to start talking about the process as a whole and who makes money on on therapies. Because along the way, right, in this money maze that we always reference, there is price-taking all along the way or profit-taking all along the way. And as a result, the motivation would be to continuously be asking for more from a negotiation perspective. So I think that's one element. The other thing I think is a factor. Within the Inflation Reduction Act, there is a provision that restricts how much drug makers can actually raise their price for treatments before they are faced with a penalty for raising their drug prices higher than the consumer price index. And what we may have been seeing is a little bit of reaction there that, okay, as a manufacturer, you have a certain period of time to actually recognize, right? Revenue. And since there are some limitations now coming as a result of the inflation reduction act, it may be as a manufacturer, they are clawing forward some of that profit taking, earlier in the drug life cycle. There's so many elements of policy at play here, but I think there's also just market forces that seem a little bit nonsensical when you look at drug pricing in general within the U.S. healthcare system. I think there's another element to this that we haven't talked about recently, and that is the sophistication of science, generally speaking, right, the investment dollars that are going in to make next-gen medications is just greater and greater. We know that inflation plays a role in this, labor costs play a role, just the, the idea of the science getting more sophisticated to really address diseases that are complex, is also increasing. And so as a result, you would expect that the price would increase in line with that. I would also expect that we would derive greater value from these therapies. So I mean, that's another aspect that we could probably spend another hour talking about is the value of pharma and the value of therapies as technology and science becomes smarter and more sophisticated around disease states. I think my very first
0: episode on this podcast five years
2: ago was entitled
0: why drug pricing is so complicated. I think it's safe to say that it is still complicated. Momentum is definitely still driving towards higher prices, particularly on the list side for all those reasons, whether it is maybe the incentives within that money maze or even just the fact that the therapies we are developing are for smaller patient populations or just really complex high cost, high value, single administration type therapies when it comes to those gene therapies and some of those more specialized, personalized medicines. We know the only constant in the healthcare industry is change. So I can't wait to hear what we're talking about next month. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. To help more listeners find the podcast, make sure to like, subscribe, or leave a review. For more information about this episode and the team behind it, check out TrendingHealth.com. And to learn more about how Dynamic helps health companies transform by connecting strategy to action, visit dynamic.com.